Well, what does it mean to say that God is near us? He's saying this morning, God himself is with us. What does it mean to say that God is with us or God is near to us? What does it mean for us to be in the presence of God? So for God to be close to us or us to be close to him, God to be with us, us to be with God in the presence of God. These are important questions because uh, we often speak about the presence of God, don't we? The Bible talks a lot about the presence of God. But we, we talk about his presence sometimes without really knowing what it means. God is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere at once, right? God is everywhere at once, right? There you go. Why are we, why are we like quiet today? You know, we sang really well this morning, but you know. So God is with us, and uh, he, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. One of our hymns says it like this. There's not a plant or flower below, but makes your glories known. And clouds arise and tempests blow by order from your throne. While all that borrows life from you is ever in your care. And everywhere that man can be, you, God, are present there. So God is omnipresent. God is everywhere, and we know this. But is that all that it means? To say that God is with us. Are we saying that he's with us in a, in, in a way that's no different than the rest of the world? He's everywhere at once, and is that all we're saying when we talk about the presence of God? Or is there something special and particular about his being with us, his children, his people, his church, in distinction from that overall presence with the world in general. With the world, God's presence is what we call his providence. We've been thinking about that a lot in the story of Genesis, the providence of God. He's with and he's guiding and he's controlling and he's governing all things, leaf and blade, rain and drought and so forth. But he's also, in his providence, he's near to the world in judgment as well. It's not just a, a nice providence, but God is also a God who's present in judgment at times amongst the world. But with us, there's more than just providence. When you and I sing, God himself is with us, let us now adore him we're saying, more that than, we're saying more than just that he's with us in a generic sense like he's with everyone else in the world, including unbelievers. We're speaking of his special saving presence in the midst of impossible situations. We see that here in the story of Joseph, that God is with us. God is with his children in a very particular way, his saving special presence in the midst of impossible situations. And as we turn to this story again, we come to the story of the presence of God with Joseph in Egypt because of his brothers in a very particular saving way in the midst of an impossible Situation. You probably noticed there that four times our, our story tells us that the Lord was with Joseph. Verse number two, we read that. Verse number three, and then again, 
22 and 23, four times. So this is like the refrain of the chapter here. It's the big idea. It's the big theme. And notice that his presence, his, his, his withness with Joseph is in the middle of his impossible situation. So may the Holy Spirit be near to us in a very special way today to teach us what it means for him to be near us and us to be with him to feed our souls unto everlasting life. Notice the first, uh, in, the, in the first place, the Lord was with Joseph despite the injustice of his brothers. The Lord was with Joseph despite the injustice of his brothers. Our, our, our story returns to, to Joseph where it left off back in chapter 37, if you go backwards, at verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. <clears throat> he was the governor of the state prison in the city of Memphis uh, in ancient Egyptian history. And now this young man, Joseph, is in this house of this official Potiphar, Whose, whose name means he whom the sun god has given. He's been sent there to Egypt. Again, the, uh, the story emphasizes that three times, verse 1, verse 2, verse 5, that he was sent down into Egypt. Why? Well, obviously it was an injustice done to him by his brothers, but if we go backwards in Genesis, to chapter 15, uh, once again, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, uh, chapter 15, at verse number 13. Remember what the Lord had said to Abram, Abraham. Genesis 15 at verse 13. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Where was that going to happen? We know the story already, right? We know the, the end result. Where's that going to happen for 400 years? In Egypt. In Egypt. And so in fulfillment of that promise of God, that harsh promise, harsh providence of God, that they were going to be servants for 400 years in a land that's not their own, the text emphasizes. This is, a, this is happening precisely as God had said it was going to happen. And so on the one hand, yes, it's an injustice done to Joseph by his brothers. What they meant for evil, God meant for for good. For good. Verse 2 tells us what happened there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And no doubt many have stopped there. The Lord was with him, and he became a successful man. And many have pontificated on prosperity. The God who gives prosperity. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Yes, God was with Joseph. Yes, he became a successful man. But that's not all the story is about. It's not just about Joseph's personal success, prosperity. No, it's that success and prosperity was a means to an end, to save, to save the Israelites from famine, to preserve them in Egypt, to bring them up out into the promised land. This is no prosperity gospel. 
This is no mere just blessing, name it and claim it, and if we just be obedient like Joseph, we too can have our wildest imaginations. No, not at all. This was a means to an end, the means of salvation. And in verse 3, the story progresses, and this time his unbelieving owner, who is named after the sun god Ra, saw that the Lord was with him. The Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. It's amazing to see here how the presence of God, uh, the the special saving presence of God in the middle of an impossible situation creates an impression upon this sun-worshipping Egyptian. This is exactly what Jesus said was to mark out his disciples, those who follow the Lord. Let your light so shine before others that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, the same God who was present with Joseph down there in Egypt in the house of Potiphar, he's, he's our God. He's with us in the same special saving way, in the middle of difficult situations, the middle of our lives, the middle of our world in which we live, so that we might serve him and that the world would see and glorify our God. And so there's, a, there's an aspect of his witness here, his testimony here, his living in exile, but yet living as a child of God. And as he's respectful towards his master and he's working very diligently there in his house, No doubt it led Potiphar to see the hand of God on Joseph's life. And so he makes Joseph overseer of his house, puts him in charge of all that he had, verse 4. Look look at verse 5. From that time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had. And again, verse 6. So he left all that that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything. All he cared about was, you know, when when is his next meal going to come? And was it safe? Officials would be poisoned. And so that's all he really cared about. He had had no worldly concerns because Joseph took care of it all. That's how diligent he was. That's how much God was with him in succeeding him, prospering him, blessing him. All he cared about was his food, was his meal, right? Filling his stomach. The presence of God with Joseph in a special way in the middle of difficult situations like this, he's sold by uh, his unjust brothers uh, to the Ishmaelite traders who then sell him to the house of Potiphar, yet the Lord was with him. And so as verse 5 says, the presence of God blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had. So just in quick sum of, of that first point, Uh, Despite his brother's injustice, that goes all the way back to the beginning of the story in chapter 37, uh, the Lord was with Joseph. And, and, And recognize that. The Lord was with Joseph in a very particular way, in a way that he was not with the other brothers. In fact, the Lord even orchestrated this injustice through the wicked hands of those brothers, especially we saw... The text emphasized the wickedness and the, the injustice of Judah. All to bring Joseph down to Egypt for that ultimate redemptive purpose. 
Judah, the lion of the kings, the lion of our Lord Jesus Christ, there at the, at the head of the plot and the injustice against his own brother, but yet God was with him. Yet God was present in a particular way with Joseph to save, to fulfill his promise. You see, as I've been telling you throughout Genesis from our very first sermon in chapter 1, the story of Genesis, the story of, of, of all of Scripture, it's not about the characters. We, we learn a lot from the characters, but the story of Scripture is a story not about the particular characters, but of God. This story is not about Joseph's personal prosperity, and that if you and I would, would be just as honorable towards our boss, say, or our manager, or our teacher, or our coach. And if we would just be as hardworking like Joseph, you too can experience unrivaled success. No, the story's about God. The God who gave Joseph prosperity and even blessed the house of a pagan as the way to bring salvation to the whole house of God. And what kind of brothers was God, uh, what kind of brothers did Joseph have that God God was going to save? They were sinners, weren't they? They sold him in injustice. They plotted his death. Well, we don't want to kill him. Let's profit off of him and let's sell him to those traitors we see down on that road coming down. God is going to be present with Joseph, and he was, to save sinners, to save sinners. And so the story is about Joseph and Potiphar here and Potiphar's wife, but don't be mistaken, it's about God. God is the one who's doing the work. God's the one who's doing the action. Notice, secondly, we also see the Lord's presence with Joseph despite the injustice of his owner. From verse 6, the rest of verse 6, down to the end of the chapter, we, we see this point Not just that his brothers unjustly sold him into slavery or sold him to those who would sell him into slavery. But then as he gets into the household and he's blessed and all things are going great, then there's more injustice. Not only was Joseph successful, he was, as we see here, the story emphasizes, he was good looking, wasn't he? He was handsome. He was handsome. Why does it mention that? Well, we know from ancient documents that amongst household slaves in Egypt, sexual immorality was rampant. And so not only is Joseph at sort of the top of the food chain there amongst the slaves, in the house. I mean, he's in charge of everything. But he's also a good-looking guy. He could have done whatever he wanted because Potiphar's house was being blessed and prospered. All he cared about was his food. He left everything in the charge of Joseph. He could have done what he wanted with whomever he wanted, whenever he wanted, as much as he wanted. That's That's the point of the story. He could have partook of, 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 of this particular sin of, of immorality in any way that he pleased. And it's no surprise then that 
Potiphar's wife, and again, from ancient sources, we know that officials like this typically were older men, and they had very young wives, and perhaps these older men were away and doing official work, and so she herself wants to partake of this sin with a slave. Lie with me, verse 7. But we learn something about Joseph, don't we? That we've already seen. The narrative describes him as a righteous man in contrast to his brother. And he's righteous in contrast to his unbelieving master. He refuses to sleep with Potiphar's wife. Instead, he answers her very powerfully, saying that because Potiphar's put everything in his house under his care, in his charge, how could he take advantage of that? How could I take advantage of my master's wife? How then can I do this great wickedness, verse 9, and sin against God? Notice that again, it's a little a way of showing us that it's God who's really the important character here. It's Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And yes, it would have been sin against Potiphar, but how can I do this and sin against God, most importantly? And so she was persistent, day after day, pursuing him. And so he was persistent, day after day, in rejecting these overtures, these temptations. Now, there is a legitimate moral example here. The Apostle Paul tells us that whatever was written in former days is written for our example, and so there are examples for us in the Bible. Uh, These things took place as examples for us, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, speaking of the Old Testament, the patriarchs, and so forth. And the very context of the story so far that we've been seeing here with Joseph is is a story uh, in which his abstinence from sexual immorality is in contrast to the immorality, the sin of his brothers. And as Moses is writing the story of Genesis and it becomes scripture, the Israelites are now out of Egypt. They're now in the wilderness. They're now moving towards the promised land. uh, And they are very soon, as the story goes on to say, they are very soon, they themselves as a nation, going to be tempted and tested whether or not they will partake of immorality amongst all these pagan neighbors in Canaan. And so it's a call to us. We are called here to flee sexual immorality, as the apostle tells us. We are to resist. We are to resist sinful temptation the easiness of it in our own age, our own time. It's as close these days as our own phones, isn't it? We're called to be holy. We're called to be pure. Why? Because we've been redeemed by grace. At the high, high cost of the death, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here is Joseph, a servant of God, a disciple of the Lord, following, following the Lord's path for his life, resisting sin, seeking to serve God in his daily life. But yet, a day comes, he's in the house, no one else is there. She notices that, that's Potiphar's wife. 
She approaches him again. This time she grabs hold of him, his garment. In response, so famously, Joseph flees the house, even leaving his garment behind him. Isn't it kind of funny, kind of interesting how Joseph's garment always gets him in trouble, doesn't it? This is the second time. I mean, what's with Joseph and clothes? They get him into trouble a lot, right? He had his his, uh, technicolor dream coat uh, the first time he got in trouble, and now again he's in trouble because of of a garment. And she uses it against him in a lie, in an unjust lie, in an unjust plot. She lies about him to the household servants and especially to her husband Potiphar, who then throws him into prison. Now, ancient Egyptian texts confirm that uh, this kind of crime was punishable by death. For a slave to try to forcibly rape an Egyptian woman was a crime punishable by death. So why wasn't he put to death? Why wasn't he put to death? That's how everyone else was treated in the Egyptian culture. Why wasn't Joseph put to death? Why do you think? But God, right? But God, there's something about what God is doing here. God had another plan. And so goes the story. So his brothers had sold him unjustly into slavery, but the Lord was with him. Potiphar's wife unjustly lies about him. But the Lord was with him. Potiphar unjustly throws him into prison. But the Lord was with him. And now while he's in prison, we read again. But the Lord was with him. And the Lord showed steadfast love. That special love of God, that faithfulness to his covenant, his commitment, his promise to Joseph and to the Israelites to bring them salvation. God showed steadfast love, gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. No matter where you put Joseph, the Lord's with him. And amazingly, the, 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 prison, the keeper of the prison, just like Potiphar, puts everything in Joseph's charge. Why? Because the Lord's with him. Whatever he did, the Lord, verse 23, made it succeed. So what's the meaning of all this? Recall that I said when we came to chapter 37 a few weeks uh, ago, in the beginning of the Joseph narrative, that uh, whereas with the story of Abraham, the focus of the narrative was faith. Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as Righteousness. He believed God's word, and he even was willing to sacrifice his own son. And so Abraham emphasized the theme, the doctrine, the reality of faith. And then with the story of Jacob, we saw especially Jacob as this wretched man that I am, this sinner. God emphasizes, the story does, of God's grace. God is constantly pursuing Jacob in his sins. But here in the Joseph story, the the theme is of not just the providence of God, but the presence of God. The presence of God. He's sold. He's thrown into prison. And it's all a part of God's redemptive plan. 
The psalmist described the story of Joseph saying, the Lord sent a man ahead of them, the Israelites. Unbeknownst to all of them, God had a purpose. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And that purpose, the purpose of his suffering at the hands of unjust brothers and an unjust ruler, master, was to prepare a place of salvation for the Israelites. Do you realize that if Joseph wasn't unjustly taken by his brothers and put into that pit, that well that had no water? Do you realize that if Joseph wasn't taken out of that pit and put on the back of a camel with those Midianite traders and then sold to the household of Potiphar, we saw uh, the amount of shekels of silver that was the going rate for a slave in ancient Egypt. Do you realize that if Joseph hadn't been unjustly dealt with in all those ways, and if Joseph hadn't been unjustly dealt with by, by Potiphar himself, that if Joseph didn't get down to Egypt by the means of injustice, do you, do you realize that you wouldn't be saved. You wouldn't be saved. Humanly speaking, there would be no promised line. They would have all perished in famine like so many others in Canaan. And if there was no Joseph in Egypt, there was no Israelites eventually making it down to Egypt, if there was no 400 years of, of, of slavery and harshness and exile, there would be no Jesus Christ. There would be no promised line, no seed of the woman. There would be no, no, no uh, offspring of Abraham like the stars and, and the sand, the grains of sand on the sea. God's great purpose was to prepare a place to save Israel, to save the world. And so there's a little glimpse here of Jesus. Just a faint little glimpse, a little shadow of our Lord. We see Jesus here in Joseph's righteousness in contrast to his brothers, especially so amazingly, especially Judah, the line of Jesus. Here's, here's Joseph, the righteous Savior. Here's Jesus shadowed in Joseph's unjust treatment, the righteous one suffering, uh, the, the suffering servant who's sent by God before them to bring salvation. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him in all that injustice. And because the Lord was with our Lord, Jesus Christ, he's with us. And in this, we as the saved children of God, we too can then make sense of suffering and injustice. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the greater Joseph, the one who was delivered up by wicked men's hands to the cross. Yet it was by the foreknowledge and divine purpose of God that he was delivered up to save sinners. So all this to say that Jesus Christ is the Savior. Amen. Amen. Jesus Christ is the Savior. He saves sinners. He saves sinners. Don't forget that this morning. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you are doing, no matter what you might do, Jesus 
saves sinners. And we come to him and he invites us as sinners to come to him with all of our sins. He doesn't say do all these X, Y, and Z first, all these preconditions. He just says come. He says come and follow me. And as we follow him, he begins to relieve us of those burdens. He forgives us. And more and more, he makes us more like him in sanctification. So this morning, come to him. And for all of us as believers who are wearied by our own sins, we come to the table of the Lord, which is this visible sign to us that Jesus saves sinners and that he loves us. And that one day we'll sit in his presence, no longer eating bread and wine. We won't need that anymore. We'll we'll have our eyes feasting upon the Savior, the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Let's pray.